want to invest, but I have no idea where to start. We have heard this time and time again over the past few years, so that's what this episode is all about. Using everything we've learned so far, we're going to go through the 10 exact steps we'd take if we were to start investing again. And hopefully it will help you take that next step on your investing journey. All on today's episode of the Stocks and Savings Podcast. Hi, we're Andrea and Jamie, two millennial investors and chartered accountants that are here to help you become more confident about the world of investing and finance. We want to give a disclaimer that we are not financial advisors. Nothing in this podcast should be treated as financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. When investing, your capital is at risk and the value of your investments may rise and fall. We'd like to thank our season sponsor Trading212 for helping us bring you this podcast. Trading212 is an investing platform which aims to democratize investing and it's also the platform that we have used since we started. But more on that later. So I'm quite looking forward to this episode because we made a lot of mistakes when we started investing. We've learned a lot of lessons and we hope that this can almost be seen as a 10-step guide that can help you to start your investing journey on a better path than we did. So there are 10 steps and they can kind of be broken down into three different sections. Steps one to three are what we would do before we started investing to prepare ourselves both financially and mentally to begin our investing journey. Steps four to seven are what we would actually do when we started investing. You know, the accounts that we'd open, who we'd use and the types of stuff that we would invest in. And then steps eight to 10 are all about what we will be doing throughout our future investing journey. So what we will do going forward, how we ensure we remain consistent and how we ensure that we build our portfolios out over the long term. So let's get into it. All right. Step one, get specific about my goals. Before I even think of investing my first penny, I would think about why exactly it is that I want to invest and what my goals are. Investing has historically been a great way to grow your wealth over decades, so I need to make sure that putting my money into the stock market actually aligns with my goals. When you invest, you should have a minimum time horizon of three to five years, but ideally decades. This means that, for example, if my goal is to buy a house next year, then I probably shouldn't be investing any of that money because it's simply too risky in the short term. So what are my goals? Why do I want to invest? Is it because I want to build my wealth for retirement? Is it so that in 10 or 15 years time, I might give myself the option of taking a lower paying job that has fewer hours and less stress, knowing that I can supplement my income with my investments? Or is it because I want to create generational wealth? So that is money that I can pass down to my kids. The more specific you can get about your goals, the better. Because your investments can go both up and down, and knowing your why can really help you to stay invested in the bad times. If you don't know why you're investing, then it's very easy to say, oh well, I give up, I'm just not going to invest anymore at the first sign of trouble. And guess what? There has always been trouble in the stock market. But taking this approach of selling your stocks at the first sign of trouble or when they fall in 10 or 20% has historically not been the best thing to do. So if I was to get specific about my goal, I'd say it was more geared towards achieving financial independence. So out of the examples we just mentioned, the closest one that aligns to my goals would be to be able to have more flexibility with how I spend my time in 10, 15, 20 years time. That might look like working a job with fewer hours or less stress or being able to spend more time with my family. Ultimately, my goal is to give myself the ability to live my life according to what I want to do rather than it being dictated by my financial position. 
Knowing this means that I'm far less likely to just give up at the first sign of trouble because there are always going to be tough periods for investors. But the long-term result has often been a very positive one. Step 2. Get my finances in order. You can't build a house without solid foundations. If you try building a house on a piece of land that is unstable, then all it might take is one strong gust of wind or a minor rumble in the ground to make your entire building collapse. And investing is exactly the same. You cannot build wealth by investing without solid financial foundations. Otherwise, any semi-small shock to your finances risks destroying all of the hard work you've put in to build up your investment portfolio. That's why I'd focus a lot on getting my finances in order before I started investing. Now, I'll be honest, my finances were a bit of a mess back in 2019, and I'd only just decided to get them back on track in 2020 when I started investing. There are a couple of things that, as a rule of thumb, you should do before you start putting money into the stock market. One, you should pay off any high interest debt, such as credit cards. And two, you should build an emergency fund. The first one is more obvious. The stock market has historically returned, on average, between 8-10% to a year. But this is not guaranteed. The amount that investing might return in a given year can vary wildly. Sure, your investments might rise by 20% in a given year, but it could also fall in value by 20% or more. However, if you have a credit card that's charging you interest of 10% or more, you can guarantee that you'll be charged that interest. So you are far better off using any excess cash you have to pay down that debt, because you can guarantee that you will be in a better financial position since you won't have to be paying 10% or more in interest each year. Whereas investing is more risky, the returns can be higher than 10% in a given year, but they can also be far lower and even negative. Now, the good news was that I didn't have any high interest debt when I started investing. So at least I got that right. However, what I didn't get right was building an emergency fund. So an emergency fund is simply some money that's put aside into an easy access savings account that can help you to deal with financial emergencies such as an expensive operation, your car breaking down or losing your job. Most financial advisors recommend having an emergency fund that covers three to six months worth of expenses. But when I started investing, I had no savings whatsoever. Now, I get it in a sense, because it is a big task building an emergency fund that would cover three to six months worth of living expenses. And for me, the idea of having to build that was just quite overwhelming, to be honest. I mean, I had only just managed to get my finances back on track. You know, in 2019, I was dipping into my overdraft a lot. I'd only just managed to stop doing that by 2020. The idea of saving up thousands of pounds into an emergency fund, you know, it felt impossible. So I just kind of closed my eyes, stuck my head in the sand and was like, ah, it's fine. But here is what I should have done. I should have spent a few months saving enough into my emergency fund such that I could cover one month's worth of living expenses. Then. I would have started investing some money each month whilst also putting some money into my emergency fund. Finally, once my emergency fund was large enough and you know this could take years, I would focus all my energy into investing. And the reason for this is simple. The last thing you want to do is to be forced to sell your investments at an inopportune time. Imagine this potential scenario. There is a big recession, such as the one in 2008, and the economy slows down and you lose your job. Because there's a recession and the economy is struggling, guess what? Your investment portfolio has dropped by 40%. This is, quite possibly, the worst time to sell your investments. But if you don't have an emergency fund, 
and you don't have a job, you might be forced to sell your stocks just to put food on the table. For example, imagine that you had £20,000 invested in an S&P 500 index fund, which is basically a basket of stocks of 500 large companies in the United States. You had £20,000 invested on the 1st of January 2008, but you ended up selling those investments in October 2008 for just under £18,000 because a massive recession hit and you didn't have an emergency fund. That loss seems small, but guess what? If you had kept that money invested, it would now be worth more than £125,000. This is the potential cost of not having an emergency fund. So it's crucial that you at least begin to build one before you start investing. Put simply, the more your finances are capable of coping with any large financial shocks, the better prepared you'll be to invest in the stock market. Step 3. Work on my investing mindset. Legendary investor Peter Lynch once said, Everyone has the brain power to make money in stocks. Not everyone has a stomach. By this, he meant that investing in the stock market is not just about having the intelligence to pick good stocks. It also requires the emotional fortitude to weather the ups and downs of the market and stick with your investment strategy even when things get tough. Investing in stocks can be a roller coaster ride, with prices fluctuating wildly in response to a range of factors, from global events to company-specific news. For some people, the emotional strain of watching their investments rise and fall is simply too much to handle. They may panic and sell when the market drops, missing out on potential gains if the market rebounds. By contrast, successful investors like Lynch are able to maintain a cool head and stick to their long-term investment plans even in turbulent times. They have the stomach to ride out short-term fluctuations and trust that over the long term, the stock market tends to reward patient and disciplined investors. I feel like we could have actually renamed this section because there is one very easy way to improve your investing mindset and understand some investing history. Read The Psychology of Money. This book by Morgan Housel remains one of the most impactful things we have read when it comes to our finances and approach to investing. It isn't too long, it's easy to read, and an investment in this book would probably pay off a hundred times over throughout your investing journey. We wish we had read it before we started investing because it taught us an incredible amount of invaluable lessons and we can't recommend it enough. So step three can also be renamed Read the Psychology of Money. Step four, choose a low-cost investing provider. Want to know a quick and easy way to boost your investment returns over time? I mean, don't we all? Don't waste your hard-earned cash on extortionate fees charged by investment providers. We found a fun example from Nasdaq.com which compared the impact of fees on two investors. We'll call these Andrea and Jamie. I know, I know, we're so original with the names we come up with. How about Anna and Jasper instead? Okay, fine. Anna and Jasper. There we go. That, that's our creativity done for today. Anna doesn't have to pay any fees for anything on her investments, and Jasper has to pay 1%. They start investing at the age of 20 until retirement age 65. They invest £6,500 per year and their investments rise by an average of 10% per year before the impact of fees. By the time they hit 65, Jasper has an impressive £4.07 million despite paying his 1% in fees per year. But Anna, who didn't have to pay any fees, has a whopping £5.66 million. That is almost £1.6 million more than Jamie, even though their actual investments got the same return and the only difference in fees was just 1%. I guess you could call it a million dollar mistake. Oh my, 
there we go. There's an alternative title for this podcast. Don't make this $1 million mistake. Well, there's a couple of issues with this example, namely that you'll never be able to invest with zero fees and assuming a return of 10% per year for 45 years is very optimistic. Plus, who starts investing at 20? People that really know their stuff. Maybe Americans. Who knows? Um, to be fair, Americans are a lot better at, it pains me to say it, but Americans are a lot better at investing than us in the sense that it's really ingrained into their culture. Yeah, I think it's a lot more normal and a higher percentage of Americans invest in the stock market than of Brits. Okay, so that example isn't perfect, but it does do a great job of demonstrating the long-term impact of paying higher fees on your investments. A difference of 1% may seem small, but it can have a huge impact. Decades ago, the only way that you could invest was if you were willing to pay substantial fees to investment providers. And that's part of the reason why the world of investing was only accessible to the rich and wealthy. But thankfully, nowadays there are some far more affordable ways to invest. Whenever we get asked to recommend a low-cost investment provider, there's one name that comes to mind. The next 45 seconds are kindly sponsored by Trading212, but we've used Trading212 long before we had a partnership with them. Now, we're going to be honest with you. When we started investing, we didn't have the confidence or the means to invest large sums of money. We started investing with £50 each. So we need a platform that allowed us to invest little money and that had minimal costs because we were investing £50 at a time and high fees would have significantly reduced our returns. This is why we chose Trading212 and almost four years on, we still have our stocks and shares ISAs with them because apart from their low fees, the app is really easy to use and they offer a great range of investments. If you sign up to Trading212 using the referral link in the description and deposit at least the minimum amount required for Investor ISA accounts, which at the time of recording is £1, you can get a mystery free share worth up to £100. Terms and conditions apply. So step four of choosing a low-cost investing provider is something that we would keep the same. We started our investing journey on Trading212 and we would start it with them again if we had to start from scratch. Because as we saw, the long-term impact of fees can really eat away at your investments. And don't get me wrong, there will always be some fees that you have to pay. For example, funds will have their own charges that cover buying and selling of different stocks or the fund manager's time if the fund is trying to pick their own investments and outperform the S&P 500, for example. Exactly. There are any number of fees when it comes to investing. You know, there are platform fees, there are fees for buying and selling stocks, there are fees for investing into funds. So there are foreign exchange fees. So in all of these circumstances, it helps if you can go for the lowest fees possible, as long as you're not having to sacrifice your returns in order to do so. Step five, set up a tax advantaged investing account. First, we should explain something. Because the world of investing is pretty new to a lot of people, the terminology and the actual way things work are not as obvious. So imagine you have a bank savings account. There are two parts to this. One, you have your bank such as Barclays or HSBC. And two, you have your account type, a savings account. Investing is the same. You'll have an investing provider, for example, Trading212, and then you will have some form of investing account. The two main ones that we have in the UK are called a general investment account and a stocks and shares ISA. And they will often allow you to do the same things and buy the same shares or funds within them. But there is one key difference. When you invest within a stocks and shares ISA, 
you will never have to pay any tax on the profits or dividends that your investments generate. This is even more important nowadays because the government is reducing the amount of profit you can make before you start having to pay tax. So in the tax year ending in April 2023, so last year, you could have made £12,300 worth of profit from selling investments, known as capital gains, before having to pay any tax. In the tax year ending April 2024, which is the current tax year, this allowance was more than halved, meaning you can only make £6,000 worth of profit from selling investments before being taxed. Then, for the tax year ending in April 2025, it's going to be halved once again, meaning that you can only make £3,000 worth of profit. And the exact same trend is happening with dividend allowances as well. That's why it's so important to take advantage of the stocks and shares ISA. As of the time of recording, everyone in the UK has an annual ISA allowance of £20,000. This means that every tax year, you can put £20,000 into ISAs and not have to pay tax on any gains from them. The three main types of ISAs are cash ISAs, stocks and shares ISAs, and lifetime ISAs. Now, that £20,000 allowance covers all of these ISAs. For example, if you put £5,000 into a cash ISA in a given tax year, then you could only put £15,000 into your stocks and shares ISA. But if you don't use any other ISAs, then you are able to invest up to £20,000 per year into a stocks and shares ISA without ever having to pay tax on the future profits or dividends. It's worth noting that you can only contribute to one stocks and shares ISA in a given tax year. Like you can have multiple and you can even open multiple in the same year, but you can only contribute money to one in a given tax year. We'll quickly mention another tax advantage account that you can use to invest. And this is a pension. This could be the workplace pension that you pay into with your employer or a self-invested personal pension, which is also known as a SIP. These are also tax-efficient ways to invest, but the downside is that there's a limit on when you can withdraw the funds. For example, with a SIP, you can only withdraw the money invested once you hit 55, and this will increase to 57 in 2028. That's one of the benefits of a stocks and shares ISA. Your money isn't locked away and you can withdraw it at any time. There are plenty of options out there and a lot of investment providers offer a stocks and shares ISA or a SIP. You can always check out Money Saving Expert for recommendations. However, unsurprisingly, we use Trading212 stocks and shares ISA. We have done it for years and we will continue to do so going forward. Step 6. Make global index funds the bulk of my portfolio. Okay, first off, some definitions. A global index fund is basically a basket of stocks of various sizes from all over the world that you can invest in. And this aims to give you the same return as the world stock market. With a global index fund, I'd basically be investing in the world's economy, which means I would be spreading my risk and I wouldn't have to spend countless hours deciding what stocks to buy every single month. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't be betting on a single company or even a country or an industry. You would be betting on the world's economy and stock market, which, you know, if you can't bet on that, then what can you bet on? Exactly. History shows that innovation has constantly driven economic activity higher and has boosted profits. And that has driven the global stock market higher over time. And, you know, there are countries like the United States, which has had an amazing stock market for the last century. But there is no guarantee that that will stay the same for the next century. 
I'm not saying it won't, it probably will. But by investing in a global stock market index, we get to spread our risk out a bit more between different countries all across the world. You know, I think the legendary investor Warren Buffett has a famous saying that goes like, never bet against America. But I guess we'll have to agree to disagree with Warren Buffett here. I am betting on the world. But in fairness, a lot of global index funds probably have more than 50% of their holdings in US companies. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of the individual stocks that we have in our portfolios are American. So I guess I'm not saying to bet against it necessarily, but I just think it's a lot safer to spread your risk across the whole world rather than one country, even if that's probably the biggest kind of financial and economic powerhouse that our world has ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So examples of these funds include the Vanguard FTSE Global All Cap Index Fund, the Vanguard FTSE All World ETF, the Vanguard ESG Global All Cap ETF, with the ESG acronym basically meaning that this is like an ethical investment, but I feel like that will need its own podcast, Um, or something like the iShares Core MSI World ETF. Now, don't be scared by the names of these funds if they're unfamiliar. I mean, even as I was saying them in my head, I was just like, God, this sounds like a load of nonsense to, uh, well, 99% of people. And we've always said that the world of investing, it's almost like learning a second language. But these names might sound scary, but they are just collections of stocks managed by different firms. And don't worry, you don't have to try and memorize these if you want to learn more. We will leave their names in the description of this podcast episode. Yes. So just as a quick explanation, the first word in those names represents the firm that actually puts together this basket of stocks. So when I say Vanguard FTSE Global All Cap Index Fund, it just means that Vanguard put together this basket of stocks that replicates the index called FTSE Global All Cap. That's just a benchmark meant to measure the performance of the world's stock market. Actually, we also have an Instagram post where we explain this kind of stuff and where we break down the fund name. So maybe I'll leave that in the description of the episode as well. Or, I mean, the Instagram post is good, but because of the limitations of how much information we can fit into an Instagram slideshow, it's quite brief. We do have a past edition of our newsletter as well, where we explain it in a bit more detail. So maybe we can leave that as well. That's a good idea. I'll do that. So yeah, if these names have seemed like a bit of a blur and you want to learn a little bit more about them after this episode, we will leave the names of the funds down in the description and we'll leave a link to that newsletter where you can just go and you can just read through how these names are broken down and kind of how you can decipher them. They're quite easy once you get used to them, but it does take a little bit of getting used to them. But going back to this step, which is making global index funds the bulk of our portfolios. Now, this was a step that we would both change if we had to start investing again. We have always been interested in the world of business and investing. And when we first got the opportunity to put our money in the stock market, we were only thinking about one thing, researching companies, investing in shares of those companies and making money. And also, I do think that when you first start out, not knowing much about the stock market, you almost think that you can only invest in shares. Yeah, exactly. You're right. You just think that the stock market is this place where people buy and sell shares of companies and that's it. And there's not much else you can do. Yeah, I think a lot of us know most of our knowledge about the stock market from films like Wolf of Wall Street or, I don't know, The Big Short or things like that. 
Yeah, and often when the stock market is in the news, there's a bit of a focus on companies as well. Like, oh, this company's gone bankrupt and their shares have plummeted or something like that. So investing in stocks of individual companies was exactly how we started. But we eventually realized that there were some problems with that approach. First and foremost, investing in individual companies is risky. When you have an investment portfolio of 20 to 30 companies, it is likely to be much more of a roller coaster than it would be investing in a global index fund that has close to 4,000 companies in it. The reason is that when you invest in well-diversified index funds, any bad investment has a tendency to be cancelled out by good investments. And history has shown that over time, the good investments outnumber the bad and drive returns for investors. However, if you only invest in 20 to 30 stocks, then the performance of any one of those companies will have a much greater influence on the overall value of your portfolio. And if you get things wrong, which we certainly did when we started investing, then there's a much greater risk of losing a significant chunk of your money. Now, when we or anyone else talks about like, the potential returns you could get from investing and you know, saying, if you do this for 20 or 30 years, you can end up a millionaire or whatever. It's normal to assume an average long-term growth rate of 7 or 8%. This growth rate is based on well-diversified index funds. I think it's probably more based on the US stock market and also the global stock market. But if you look at the UK stock market, for example, it's not been returning anything close to these rates in the last probably decade or two. Exactly, which is a reason why we don't stick to just investing in the UK stock market. Obviously, the US one looks more attractive right now, but that is why we spread our risk, invest in almost 4,000 companies from across the globe. And that way, fine, we will have access to the UK stock market, which hasn't been the best, but we'll also have access to the US stock market, which has performed very well. So this is where that 7 to 8% comes from. And you know, if you're plugging that into a retirement calculator and seeing how much your investments could earn you over time, and you use that kind of assumption, it is based on a broadly diversified index fund. However, if you invest in individual stocks, whilst there's a chance that you could grow your money faster, there's arguably an even greater chance that you could lose far more money. Let's take it to the extreme. Imagine that you decide to invest £10,000 into PayPal back in 2021 because you thought digital payments were the future. Fast forward to today, and that £10,000 investment would now be worth £2,200. Wow. And that's crazy, right? I mean, it's PayPal. It's not some rubbish company. You know, PayPal's shares have declined by almost 80%. And your portfolio would have got to a place from where it would be difficult to recover. And, you know, as a little disclaimer as well, I recently bought PayPal shares. So I'm hoping that the business recovers. And obviously, I have my reason to believe that it will recover. But regardless, this is the risk you take when investing in individual stocks. To be honest, there are some investments out there that you can look at and say, okay, yeah, pe people shouldn't have invested in that, clearly. But PayPal is not one of them. You could make a very strong investment case for PayPal. Fine, maybe the stock was expensive in 2021, but I don't think anyone would have expected it to come crashing down by 80%. The other reason why we wish we'd started with global index funds is because it takes a lot of time to invest in individual stocks. You have to do a good chunk of research initially, keep up with the results four times a year, and be on the lookout for any other news throughout the year. And you have to do this for 20 to 30 companies, and you have to do this for years and years. I believe that the only way you can do this consistently is if you are truly fascinated by it. 
it would almost have to be a hobby, but it has the potential to take up an incredible amount of time. So that is why we would instead start by making global index funds the bulk of our portfolios. Step seven, get some individual stocks on the side. So you know everything we just said about the risks of having individual stocks in a portfolio? Well, apparently we just can't help ourselves. Like we said earlier, we are incredibly interested in understanding how businesses work and learning about what makes a good investment. That is why if we were to start from scratch, we would also invest in some individual stocks along with our index funds. Now, the percentage of our portfolios that would be made up by individual stocks would probably vary quite a bit between the two of us, as it actually does right now. Yes, yeah, so I initially started with solely investing in individual stocks, but I have veered away from that a bit over the years. And now index funds are approximately 65 to 70% of my portfolio for all the reasons that we listed up until now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I also started investing solely in individual stocks. And then, yeah, as we just said, there's loads of advantages to global index funds. And it makes so much sense to have them as a big bulk of your portfolio, you know, which is why they currently make up 0% of my portfolio, because I'm a dummy that likes to keep investing in individual stocks. We have this saying in Romanian, which I think I've, I've said that to you before, Jamie. And you said like, what? <laughs> But it's like, do as the preacher says, not as he does, or something like that. Or like, do as the preacher preaches, I suppose, not as he does. Yeah, I guess we have do as I say, not as I do here. Mm. But uh, I guess that's kind of true. I mean, you know, I have my reasons for still investing solely in individual stocks. And in truth, it has gone quite well for me over the last 12 months. Like this year in particular has been so much better. I think I've learned a lot. I know how many mistakes I made in the first 12 to 18 months, and that set me back quite a bit. But I was desperate to keep learning about individual stocks, and it is a bit of a hobby of mine. I do plan on starting to invest in global index funds at some point. Famous last words. Well, I was going to say, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me say that quite a few times over the last year or two. But hey, one of these days it might happen. And in fairness, what I'm not counting is my self-invested personal pension which does consist solely of index funds. So if I was counting that, then I'd probably say about 25% of my investments are in global index funds. Well, at least you are on the right track, I suppose. Let's be a pressure, Jamie, (laughs) into investing in more index funds. Anyway, having a smaller number of individual stocks that make up a smaller percentage of our portfolios means two things. One, we are more protected from the risk of our portfolios falling substantially. And two, if we have fewer individual stocks, then that means we'll have to dedicate less time to researching and keeping up with them. To summarize, we would get some individual stocks as a smaller percentage of our portfolios if we were to start again. But this is purely personal preference and we wouldn't necessarily recommend doing this unless you are genuinely interested in learning more about the world of business and investing. Now, we just wanted to ask a quick favor that will take less than 10 seconds of your time and would be a massive help to us and this podcast. If you're enjoying this episode and you found this podcast helpful in any way, then we'd really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Since we're a smaller podcast, this would really help us to reach more people, gain credibility, and hopefully dedicate even more resources to bringing you a podcast that will help you save, invest, and build wealth whilst enjoying life. 
We'd really, really appreciate it. And I promise it takes less than 10 seconds. So thank you. And on with the podcast. Step eight, invest small amounts regularly. One of the most important things to do when you start investing is to form a habit. Remember, when you invest, you are doing so with a time horizon that is at least three to five years long and ideally much longer. Being an investor should be a lifelong commitment. At least the numbers say that investing for decades is going to help you have more success in the stock market than someone who invests for a shorter period. That's part of the reason why when we put our money into our investing accounts, we do something called pound cost averaging. It's more commonly referred to as dollar cost averaging, but hey, we're not in the US. Pound cost averaging simply means investing money into your investments at regular intervals rather than dumping it in all at once. And there are a number of advantages to this. Firstly, it helps to form a habit of investing a portion of your salary every month. This can make the habit of investing much easier as you will have a certain percentage of your monthly budget that is going to go into your investment account, no questions asked. It will be treated like any other expense, such as bills or savings. Another benefit to not lumping in your money all at once is that you are spreading your risk over time. If you put £12,000 into the stock market on the 1st of January, you may well see a good gain by the end of the year, but you might also see a substantial loss, depending on how the market performed. On the other hand, if you spread that out and invest £1,000 per month, it should smooth out your returns. Some months you'll invest when the market is up, some months you'll invest when the market is down. And that will help to spread your risk. And don't get me wrong, studies show that actually the lump sum approach to investing is the mathematically optimal approach. A study by Morgan Stanley shows that in the example we just looked at with £12,000 being invested in a lump sum versus spread out over 12 months, the lump sum approach generated higher returns than the pound cost averaging approach 55% of the time. So a small difference, but a difference nonetheless. However, they came to the same conclusion as us. Pound cost averaging has a lot of advantages, especially when it comes to managing risk and making investing a bit less of a roller coaster. Now, when we started investing, we were only putting in £50 at a time, but that helped us to form a habit and ease ourselves into the world of investing. Almost four years on, and our approach hasn't changed. We still set aside a portion of our income every single month to add to our investment portfolios. Step nine, don't check my portfolio every day. This one sounds simple, right? Don't check your portfolio every day, easy. But this is so much tougher than it sounds, especially when you're just starting out. While we know that the best mindset to have when it comes to investing is being cool, calm and collected, the reality is often different, particularly at the beginning. When we first started investing, looking at our portfolios would fill us with either joy or fear, depending on whether or not our stocks were rising or falling. So we ended up looking at our portfolios about 10 times a day, glued to whether or not the little numbers on our screen were going up or down. But this goes against everything we believe when it comes to investing. If you're going to be investing for decades, what's the point of staring at your portfolio every 15 minutes? And remember, when you are investing in shares of a company, you are becoming a part owner of these businesses. If you're a part owner of your local bakery, would you be going in and checking how much the business was worth every day? The answer, of course, is no. But it can be very difficult when you have very easy access to the numbers on a screen that are changing every minute. That actually reminded me that I have to get back to the Daisy Green collection, one of our favorite cafe chains. 
it's not publicly listed on the stock market, but a few years back, they held a crowdfunding campaign on Cedars, I believe, and we managed to participate in it. And last week, they sent us an email that we can invest in them again, that they're doing, I don't know if it's another crowdfunding campaign or is it, what is it called? It's not a crowdfunding campaign, I don't think. It's just another... Um, well, it's like a funding round, but only for existing investors, right? I think so. But it's funny because that's a great example because, yeah, fine, we invested in that, what, two or three years ago. And we have never thought about it. We've never thought about the value of our investment. We just put that money in. We knew it would be super locked away because it's a private investment. And so we haven't worried about it. Slash, we kind of forgot about it. But I mean, there is a saying in investing that goes like, set it and forget it. And obviously, don't actually forget about your investments. But in the sense that you should invest for years or even decades. But as we said, we do struggle because it's very easy to just kind of be staring at your investment portfolio when the numbers on the screen and the amount that your portfolio is worth are changing every minute. Now, we've had several solutions to this over time, including removing our investing platforms from our phones for a few days or adding in screen time limits. And for the screen time limits as well, it was very important that only the other person knew the password to the screen time limit, because otherwise... I don't know about you, but if I knew the password, I would have just put that in and continued to look at my portfolio. Yeah, but then you don't get locked out of your phone. Depends how much you trust your partner. What do you mean? Well, what happens if they break up with you? Oh, right. Well, I do think that it would be more of a short-term solution in order for you to kind of get in the habit of not checking your portfolio this much. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so these two tips can be particularly useful if you feel like you're struggling when it comes to the amount that you're checking your portfolio, because this is a very common problem that can often leave newer investors feeling stressed out, anxious, and can ultimately lead them selling their stocks and giving up on investing because it's just taking too much of an emotional toll. Luckily for us, nowadays we've become somewhat desensitized to the ups and downs of our portfolios. But don't get me wrong, it always feels kind of rubbish when your investments are falling. That's why if we were to start investing from scratch, we would try to stop ourselves from checking our portfolio on a daily basis from day one. Step 10. Continue to increase my contributions as my income increases. Now, there's sometimes a misconception here that we want to clear up. Sometimes in the world of finance and social media and hustle culture, lots of people have the view of like, live below your means and invest the rest. And if you get a raise, then invest all the extra money. And don't get me wrong, I feel like when we first started our Instagram and our finance journey, we were very much on board with those statements. We were just like, yes, we have to invest as much as possible and like live like a hermit until we manage to finally retire or something. And obviously retire early because there's no other way. But now I'm kind of like, no, I worked hard for that raise and I don't just want to focus on growing wealth for the future without being able to enjoy some of that extra money now. So it will depend on your personal situation. But imagine that you get a pay rise, which means you now take home £300 extra per month. Firstly, congrats. But secondly, we aren't saying to go and put all of that into your investments. If you want to do that, that's great. But if you want to increase your investments by £100 a month, maybe your savings by £50 a month, and then spend the remainder to bring you more joy in your life, go for it. Increasing the contributions that you make to your investments over time is definitely something you should be aiming to do if you're able to. We started with £50 a month, mainly because we were just starting out, so we didn't want to invest too much. 
Over time, we grew more and more confident and our salaries continue to increase until we've now got to the point such that we're able to invest £750 a month. Well, to be honest, with us, it's been a bit of a journey, hasn't it? Because when we first started out, we started out small, but then we had pretty well-paid corporate jobs. And we also had a pandemic and we were locked inside and we didn't have many expenses or a lot that we could do with our money. We were very lucky to be able to save more than usual because of the pandemic, because, well, that was certainly not the case for so many people. Yeah, it's crazy when I think about it. Like, I I feel like this is something that we could dive into a whole episode on just kind of how that caused an even greater split between those that are doing well and those that aren't. Yeah, so during that time, once we got more confident, we were able to invest quite a bit. A lot more than £750 a month. But then we quit our jobs in order to pursue stocks and savings full time. And you, Jamie, you actually quit your job like six months before me to pursue some other thing that didn't turn out well. But anyway, that meant that we had to lower the amount we invest every month. But now that our business, stocks and savings, has been doing well, we've been able to increase that amount to £750 a month, which is great. But, you know, that is just us. I'm sure some people listening will be able to invest over a thousand pounds a month and some people will be able to invest 50 pounds. In truth, it doesn't really matter what other people are doing. If you're investing any amount of money into the stock market or if you're even thinking about it just by listening to this podcast, then guess what? You are already miles ahead of most people in the UK when it comes to building wealth. I'm pretty sure the figures show that it's fewer than 5% of adults in the UK who own a stocks and shares ISA. Yeah, and I think only one in five Brits invested in the stock market as of 2023. So however much you're investing or thinking of investing, you are miles ahead of most people. But when it comes to increasing our investments as our salary increases, you know, this is what our plan would be. As we get more experience with investing, as we get more confident putting our money into the stock market, and hopefully as we continue to earn more throughout our careers, we would like to gradually increase the amount that we invest each month. Before we wrap things up, let's recap the exact 10 steps that we would take if we were to start investing all over again, taking into account everything that we've learned over the past few years. One, we'd get specific about our goals. Two, we'd get our personal finances in order. Three, we'd read the psychology of money to improve our mindset. Four, we'd choose a low-cost investing provider like Trading212. Five, we'd set up a tax-advantaged investing account like a Stocks and Shares ISA. Six, we'd make global index funds the bulk of our portfolios. Seven, we'd get some individual stocks on the side. Eight, we'd invest a small amount every month when we got paid. Nine, we wouldn't check our portfolio every day. And 10, we'll continue to increase the amount we invest as our income increases. We really hope you found this episode helpful. If you did, take a screenshot of the podcast and share it to your Instagram story and tag us at Stocks and Savings so that we can see it. And we'd really appreciate it if you could take a few seconds to give this episode a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again to our season sponsor, Trading212. And remember to check out the referral link in the description and get your mystery free share worth up to £100. Keep in mind that terms and conditions apply to the offer. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we can't wait for you to join us again next week. Until next time, bye bye.